This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Dominic Williams, the man, the legend. Thanks for joining me again on the Ether Review. <laughs> Pleasure to be here, Arthur. So I was just reading the, uh, or I just went to the Dfinity website to uh, to read up on the papers that you wrote about scaling, and I couldn't find them there. Yeah, so I've got a new paper coming. It's um, and it, this, the problem was there are so many different techniques developed over the last two years. And each of them individually could probably justify a paper. And I just, you know, you just haven't got time. Um, so the idea is to sort of condense them in more digestible form um, and, and just have one document. It's, it's going to be called a, a brief tour of Definity. And it's going to um, fully describe all of the techniques, but, you know, not as extensively as you would find in a paper. And, and anyway, I mean, most academic papers are just full of definitions and proofs and, yeah, um, and can be quite heavy going and slow to absorb. I always find with a lot, with a lot of papers actually in the space, <clears throat> you know, you read the abstracts and you think, yeah, this is really interesting. And then uh, you start on the paper and you try to sort of work out where the uh, idea is and you know, you wade through all their definitions and preambles and, you know, after a few hours, you suddenly realize that the, the idea is pretty trivial and they've just sort of blown it up and inflated it to make sure they get their research grant or something like that. Um, and then you feel totally cheated because you wasted hours um, studying the thing. So um, I, I think it's a kind of, uh, it'll be a, a better way to um, push stuff out anyway. Well, I think uh, to to introduce Definity, I think the best place to start is with your conception of the ontology of the future blockchain ecosystem that uh, that we're going to see develop. Yeah, so um, you know, I I try and avoid the word blockchain. Of course, it's very difficult because um, you know it, it has become such a powerful, all encompassing word, but. Um, it's something that means very different things to different people. I, I'm really specifically interested in scalable virtual machines. So Ethereum is a virtual machine. It's a, it's a decentralized protocol that is run between peers that produces a tamper-proof virtual machine that you can run smart contracts on. And smart contracts uh, are the kind of unit of computation in these systems, and they combine software, um, state, like a, you know, like a mini database, and potentially currency tokens or other kind of value tokens. And I think that's, that's a good model. But I, I suppose at the moment, we sort of think about these systems being used to serve or to create quite a narrow class of fiduciary applications, high value fiduciary applications. And the reason for that is mainly that the transactions are expensive, but also that, you know, 
even if you had the money, you couldn't scale the network and the transactions um, are quite slow. So from the beginning, I, I always wanted to create a kind of, I don't know, decentralized Google app engine or something like that, which wouldn't just handle fiduciary applications, although, you know, we've, at String Labs, we're very interested in fiduciary applications, but it wouldn't just handle fiduciary applications. It would also uh, make it possible to port Facebook or Uber uh, onto the platform. So, in, you know, to, to do that, you obviously have to be able to scale pretty much infinitely the number of transactions you can process a second. You have to scale pretty much infinitely the amount of state that your network can store. And you also have to improve the performance properties uh, to provide a decent user experience. So I kind of took the point of view from, I suppose, the beginning of 2015, having worked on, on scalability sort of through 2014, almost continually and at the end of 2013, that every protocol as a sort of test, every protocol that you um, design should, or at least, you know, the majority of them that are designed to work across the network, should work with one million or more servers. And that comes from the observation that Google's cloud comprises more than a million servers and Microsoft's cloud comprises more than a million servers. And additionally, you know, I, from the beginning, was thinking about things that probably, I mean, most people think are silly, but don't feel silly to me. Like, you know, how could we take a search engine like Google and put it onto a decentralized network, have it provide good performance properties? And in actual fact, with something like that, it's, it, it, you know, the, the difficulties are often to do with security, ironically, because, you know, you, even with a, a tiny low value transaction, if, if you're paying for it, that thing has to be validated. Because obviously lots of little tiny transactions that are done fraudulently can steal a lot of money. Anyway, so um, when you get into that kind of thinking, necessarily, I think, come to some conclusions about what's necessary for those kind of protocols to work. And my, my belief is that no, no such protocols can work without a, a thing called a random beacon. And so I set about uh, very early in 2015, you know, using what I call verifiable random functions, basically things like threshold cryptography or certain cryptographic signature schemes to generate the randomness that I, I need to drive the um, network. And in fact, we're just about to start, we've just started implementing some of the cryptography and very shortly are going to release it for people to use if they want to. Let's go straight to the question of what is Dfinity and how does it differ or, or what problems does it solve that you don't think Ethereum can handle? Well, so to, so um, back at the end of 2013, I already I was, I was in, interested in scalability and I started working on a thing called Pebble, um, which was my first stab at a decentralized system. And I, I abandoned a lot of the ideas that I'd been working on then, but uh, I was working on some uh, consensus techniques and you can see some of them sort of kind of surfaced in some way or another in, in um, Andrew Miller's uh, Honey Badger system. But I went a sort of different direction. I, I, I believe in virtual machines. I'm, I'm not really interested in cryptocurrencies per se. I'm interested in scalable, decentralized virtual machines. So uh, there's nothing in form that Ethereum can't do. 
um, or could have been made to do with some extensions. What it can't do practically is store unlimited amounts of state data and process unlimited amounts of transactions and also provide mechanisms for processing transactions fast enough, you know, that you can build these high level systems like search engines that provide a decent user experience. So you don't think that Ethereum can scale to the point where it can handle this kind of throughput? Well, I think it can. I mean, uh, you know, I've I've always um, sort of relayed my ideas and techniques and so on to people in the Ethereum community and promoted them. And I I think Ethereum can scale. And, you know, it's already representing major improvements over Bitcoin, right? I mean, you know, Ethereum adopted the Ghost protocol. And as a consequence, it's processing whatever it is, 20 or 30 transactions a second and making them secure in two minutes rather than sort of 40 to 60 minutes. So Ethereum is already or already represents an, an enormous increase in the performance envelope when compared with Bitcoin. So I think that we're going to continue to see these kind of improvements. You know, I think the, the future is very exciting. So how does Definity fit into the picture? Then? Well, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've always wanted to get some of this stuff built. And, and probably in the first instance, this will be something that's kind of like a hybrid between an open and private chain that addresses needs of the business sector that aren't otherwise being met. And when, you know, Definity appears, it'll have a number of distinctions in its design that go beyond just the underlying network layer, which mean that it's addressing a different sector. It will be an extension to the Ethereum ecosystem in the sense that it will run the Ethereum virtual machine the virtual machine will be a sub superset, sorry, of the um, EVM or support a superset of the EVM opcodes. And in fact, you know, we're going to start releasing components of what we're doing uh, long before that we act, long before we actually are going to be able to release Definity. So, um, one of the pieces we're going to release soon is um, a system for creating a random beacon using BLS threshold signatures which I've been talking about forever, but no one's ever implemented. So we've gone away and got that made. And I think that that could be useful on Ethereum. Um, Whether Ethereum wants to, and Ethereum's got Casper and it's got its own ideas about scaling and network architecture, but, you know, it could incorporate that kind of code directly into the um, system and provide sort of threshold signature functionality very easily. So does that make sense? It does, yes. So what is the, uh, well, actually, what, what, what was the beacon you described? Ah, so um, my theory is, and I've got no proof, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that w- one day it's going to be possible to prove this, you know, it, it creates some kind of uh, theoretical computer science result that, that, that shows this is true. But I believe that you actually need a source of randomness to create infinitely scalable decentralized networks. And I also think actually that most uh, interesting higher level decentralized services, you know, actually built with smart contracts will also in, in optimal form rely upon there being a, a sort of a incorruptible, unpredictable source of randomness, um, which is just a sequence of random numbers, right? But creating a sequence of random numbers that is incorruptible and unpredictable and is only released according to some schedule, desirable schedule, 
is more difficult than you might imagine. So uh, you see lots of ideas out there, you know, that people use to try and do it. So in the original version of Casper, and I credit myself for changing them a little bit away from this. In the original version of Casper, they had a pad, you know, a pad of bite, just, you know, bits. And every time, and this pad, you know, every you'd select a validator and then, I don't know, something, I don't know what they did. They hashed the idea of the validator into the pad or something like that and then sort of select the next validator. And if some validator failed to perform its role, then it would the, the bit would be flipped from zero to one and this would be meant to you know change the the schedule or the path through the validators. So you know that that that's one one idea. I think Te- Tezos has a kind of uses a kind of slasher idea where people commit to um, randomness and then after two thousand blocks the sort of you know the ra- the randomness from two thousand blocks is revealed and sort of awed into or hashed into the random pad. So there's a lot of techniques like that around. And unfortunately, they're all completely flawed and don't work. Generally, the, the, the fallacy that people fall into is thinking that by combining lots of, of these numbers together, you stop people influencing the output. But the problem is there's always a last person to add some value or do something that modifies it. And they can you know, either withhold their action for example, you know, if, if I'm some validator and I see that if I withhold my action, it's going to select somebody else that perhaps is the other reason for that, then, or, you know, this random value is going to cause some, more problematically, cause some behavior to be adopted in a high level system involving smart contracts. The idea is that people won't want to do that because they're going to get, they're going to lose some kind of cryptocurrency deposit you know the validator is going to lose some kind of cryptocurrency deposit uh, or be punished in some way but, but that's another falls into another fallacy called the, the, the little game big game fallacy which is that oh well you know this person's not going to want to fail to re- reveal their secret um, because if they do that they're going to lose some deposit right but you know if, if there's some higher level financial exchange depending on that it might be that by losing some relatively small deposit of a few thousand dollars that they influence the high-level exchange and make half a million dollars. So, you know, the mining reward or deposit, whatever it is they're going to be losing, is the little game. And the big game is actually influencing the financial exchange written with smart contracts where they're going to make half a million dollars. And the big game generally will trump the little game. And so to, to get past those kind of problems you have to use cryptography and so how does this uh, how does this all roll into the ball that you call definity um definity so at its core definity um works using randomness everything is based upon the presumption of being able to create incorruptible unpredictable randomness on demand and to do that we use uh, cryptographic signatures in in the space, you know, people are kind of more familiar with like ECDSA signatures. And when you create an ECDSA signature, you inject some randomness. So <clears throat> if you give me a message to sign, I can create several different valid signatures on that message. But there's uh, a class of signatures called unique deterministic signatures. And they're interesting because for every message, only a single signature is possible. 
So you need deterministic. So if you send me a message, I can create a signature on that message, and I can only create one valid signature on that message. And of course, you can validate it using my public key. So um, you know, what one might imagine one way of using this is you have a series of communication rounds, and let's say you have a million processes, and you want to create a kind of blockchain-like system. You can imagine that on each communications round, everybody, every one of these million servers, right, creates a signature on the communications round. And then that's obviously a random number, right? The signature is a random number by the properties of, you know, the, the security properties of signatures. And then they take that signature they produced, see if it's below a target, just in the same way you see if a hash is below the target number in Bitcoin or a proof of work network. And if your signature is beneath the target, then, you know, this gives you some kind of uh, winning scratch card that gives you the right to broadcast a message. But, but we um, are more focused on using threshold, unique deterministic threshold cryptography. So uh, the signatures I'm talking about, are uh, we use our BLS signatures, which were created by Dan Bonnet at Stanford. And... Um, the threshold signature also has system also has this this, this property and it's very very interesting. So let's imagine that we um, set up a threshold system, a threshold signature system, amongst a group of five hundred servers, and <clears throat> we set the threshold so that two hundred two hundred and fifty of them need to sign in order to generate the threshold signature. So what, what we're going to get is you know those five hundred processes. Are going to run some setup protocol, and at the end of that setup protocol, they're going to have they're going to produce a public key, a single public key to represent them. And each one of those 500 processes is going to have a signature share, sorry, a, a private key share. So they've each got a tiny piece of the shared private key. And when the group wants to sign some, assign a message, each of those members of the group produces a signature share, and you need to combine signature shares from the threshold, in this case, you said 250, in order to, to create the single signature for the group. So although there are, you know, there's 500 processes in the group, you know, you can end up with a sort of 32-byte signature. Now, the fascinating thing is, with BLS, is that no matter which 250 you collect signature shares from, the resulting group signature is always the same. So how big a set of component signature holders are we talking about? So, okay, so one of the um, kind of early ideas for uh, creating a chain, like a master chain, let's say that, you know, you've got a million processes and we set up, you know, 100,000 groups, 400 processes. And let's just say that this, this chain is producing a random beacon and this, there's a function on this random beacon, right? Because from a random number, you can obviously just derive anything you want. You can put that number into a function and, and that function might, for example, just select a subset of 400. I mean, trivially, right? If you've, if you've, got, a, if you've got a million processes, IDs on your ledger, you can, you know, you can use a random, you can just, you know, modulo, mod, modulo the... Um, length onto the random number to get an index of one of these processes, right? So you, you can use that random number to select any single process. And, you, you know, by similar kind of means, you can 
the, the randomness can select a group of 400 and it can say, okay, you can go away and you can run this setup protocol. And within a thousand blocks, if you've succeeded in running the threshold setup, you can post a transaction to the ledger that says, we've successfully set up our threshold system and here's our public key, right? So this master chain would accumulate the public keys of these threshold groups. Now, so let's just, that, that's how it gets, that's how you begin, right? So you've got, you know, your million processes, which when I say process, I mean like a server or something like that. You've got this million, you've got these million processes and lots and lots of subsets, random subsets of size 400 have set up threshold signature systems, right? And then sometimes it doesn't have to be all 400. It could be a few, you know, if you, it could be that you tolerate groups setting themselves up with, you know, 350, right? Anyway, so let's say we want to start, we want to start this chain going. And let's just imagine that at Genesis, this is very unlikely, but at Genesis, we have a million processes and we, we want to set this going. So what we do is we randomly select, and this, this, this of course, is going to be um, done by a human. We randomly select one initial group and that initial group would yeah. create the first block. And inside that block, they would embed a threshold signature on, you know, let's say zero because it's the first, the first block. Now, that threshold signature would select, could be used to select the next group. Now, that next group could produce a block. And in that block, they could create a threshold signature that signs the previous threshold signature, right? And this new threshold signature, and you know, the, the, remember the threshold signature is just a random value. And this random value selects the next group. And they produce a block, which includes the threshold signature on the previous. And then they validate the signature that selected them. Yeah, so, but, so the nice thing is that the threshold signature is just like a normal signature. And it can be validated against the key, the public key of the group. So everybody can validate these signatures. So if you're the group, let's say, you know, um, you know, let's say, you know, and this is, by the way, is incredibly unlikely statistically, and we'll get back to that. But just say, you know, within this, mil you know, universe of a million processes, there are a whole load of faulty processes. And that, that just means processes that, you know, don't behave as you can, can, can behave arbitrarily. You know, they might be controlled by an adversary. So this is very unlikely, as we'll get to. But let's just say that, you know, um, a group of 400 is selected in this relay that is the where the majority of the processes are faulty, right? Um, obviously, if they want to, they can just refuse to produce a block. But what they can't do is manipulate the threshold signature that they produce, right? Because, you know, the group has already committed to its public key previously, right? The only reason the group's been selected is because the group is, you know, is, is listed on the ledger, right? Their public key is in the ledger in that master chain. So they've committed to their public key, and now their job is to sign the previous threshold signature, right? But remember that this is a unique deterministic system. There's nothing they can do to produce a different threshold signature. You know, it doesn't matter. There's 400 of them. 200 have to sign. It doesn't matter which 200, which 200 of them sign. The threshold signature will always be the same, i.e. the random number will always be the same. And if they don't produce it properly, of course, everybody will just, it won't validate against 
they're public key and it'll be ignored. So what's happening here is instead of using linking the blocks in the blockchain through, and I know I know you don't like that that uh, term, and I like that you don't like it because it has been buzzwordified. Um, so instead of uh, using a, including a hash of the previous block and block header in the in the following block header and linking the uh, linking the blocks together like that, you're linking the blocks in this chain by the group that validated it. Exactly. So uh, you know we've got this huge universe of processes uh, which are continually forming groups, threshold cr- cryptography groups, and we're relaying and- between these groups. And we're doing that by having each group create a threshold signature on the threshold signature of the previous group, which can only have one value. It can only have one value. And that random value selects the next group. But what you notice is that not only can the groups not manipulate that value, but uh, they can't predict it. In, in order to predict it, you'd have to the adversary would have to have a majority of processes in that group. So let's say we're using groups of 400. You'd have to have... You'd have to control so much of the network that the randomly selected group that follows you, you would have to be able to produce that signature. Exactly. So, you know, so let's just say, you know, some group selected by incredible chance, the adversary controls 200 of the group. So he can now produce the signature secretly, the threshold signature secretly. And he knows who the next group is going to be now. Okay, yes. Right? Yes, right. Exactly. And, and now he knows that he, he doesn't tell anybody else, right? He just pre-calculates it. Once he's been selected, he doesn't produce the block right away. He tries to get some advantage. And he calculates the threshold signature. Doesn't doesn't broadcast it. And he can see, ah, the next group is this. Now, if he controls the next group too, in the sense that you know he has 200 of the processes, he can pre-calculate, do the same thing, right? Pre-calculate the threshold signature on the previous one. See the next group is that he also can, etc. However, when you do the math, you see that this just doesn't happen, right? So there's a, a thing called hypergeometric probability, which is like just combinatorial probability, but without replacement. Doesn't it, there are like calculators out there on the web, right? You don't even need to know how it works, <laughs> and you can put in the numbers. Put, put in the numbers, and let's say you start off with a process of sorry, a, a network of ten thousand processes. 2,000 of those processes are faulty. Your sample is 400. The probability of 200 of those being faulty is absolutely tiny, right? It, in, in practice, it's not going to happen. The chance that it happens twice in a row is just, you know, the, the calculator doesn't have enough. And it would have to happen twice in a row for an adversary to the network to attack the network. Yeah, so um, one of the things we've not gone to yet is that in order to scale a network, so we're not scaling a network here, we're just showing how we can create a certain kind of blockchain, right? In order to scale a network, you need an unpredictable source of randomness. And I actually believe for for, for various interesting kinds of high-level service, you also need uh, an unpredictable source of randomness. So... It's important that the adversary can't take control of the network, right? Because obviously, if the adversary could control the random number, it could just select a group that another group that it controlled, right? And it could just end up relaying between groups that it controlled. So it's very important that the randomness is incorruptible. Because obviously, if, if the randomness wasn't incorruptible, the adversary could just hijack the chain, right? And make it relay between his own groups somehow. 
So it's very important it's incorruptible, but it's also important that it's unpredictable. And it turns out, you know, I mean, what I've been describing to you is a kind of simple way of a relay chain with some complexities because you now got these groups have got to be able to agree, of course, on what the block is. And that's another thing we address. But you can actually create all kinds of interesting variations on chains using this random beacon mechanism. By the way, the, the term that we use, uh, which I credit Dan Bonnet for, I, I used to call them authenticated random numbers. And then uh, Dan Bonnet told me, no, no, they're not. It, it's, it, it's a verifiable random function or a VRF, verifiable random function. So if you looked on the, and it's gone now, but the papers we were going to release, uh, produce had things called like uh, CVRF, BVRF. That's where it all comes from. CVRF is consensus based on verifiable random numbers. BVRF is blockchain based on verifiable random numbers and so on. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about creating an incorruptible, unpredictable source of randomness using a verifiable random function based upon unique deterministic threshold cryptography, which has this kind of magic property that you can have a group that sets up the the threshold signature system and whichever um, subset of signers you choose, you only need 200 of them to sign, whichever subset of 200, it, it magically always produces the same random number, right? And so we can uh, use this to, for example, trivially relay through uh, a universe of groups. Um, the maths is such that it's extremely unlikely even that, that the, the groups will stall, and, but there's a way of addressing that. Uh, so you get this kind of very highly performant chain, by the way, because, of course, you've probably noticed in this there's no Poisson distribution, right? I have no idea what a Poisson distribution is. Ah, oh, sorry, okay, sorry. Okay, so um, you know, okay, so you know, in Bitcoin, you have a difficulty. Th- you have a difficulty. Yes. Fact, a current difficulty. But, and basically, all that is, all that does is sets that target that the uh, hash has to be below, right? So I mean, people think about it as the number of you know you've got to keep on um, spinning the nonce in your block until you find a hash that just randomly is beneath the target, right? Yeah. It's like a brute force thing, right? Ethereum's the same. Currently, it's proof of work, right? It's brute force. Now, the problem with that is the um, uh, blocks are found according to a Poisson distribution, right? And you've seen this in Bitcoin, right? Sometimes the block seems to, you know, you, you, sometimes you've got a block sort of 20 seconds later, right? And other times it seems to take hours. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Oh, and that is, that's the type of distribution <laughs> of the... Uh... Yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a brute force search, and it produces a Poisson distribution. It's like if you can imagine a graph, it's a bit like a sort of tick that's lying on its side or something like that. And uh, now this is actually very problematic if you want to make a network that runs uh, a very performant network, because if you want to sh- reduce your block time, like let's say, for example, you want to have a block time of five seconds, and the delay diameter of the network is, say, two seconds or three seconds, right? The problem is that your variance is going to, you know, for example, you know, make blocks appear at the same time, you know, and then you get flattening, like you know, uh, too many siblings appearing on a chain if you're using that kind of protocol, right? So that that was why you know Bitcoin has this ten minute block time, block time because it's just using strongest chain, and Ethereum used Ghost, right, which allows nodes to have multiple siblings, and so consequently. 
blocks in the chain to have multiple siblings and, and for later blocks to reference them. And so consequently, it can kind of remain secure with a shorter block time. But, 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 but nonetheless, it doesn't make the problem go away. If you really want to tune a blockchain to fly, you don't want to be depending on a, on a Poisson distribution. So, you know, what's happening in, in the proof of work network is everyone's beavering away trying to solve the puzzle, right? Which effectively is like a puzzle by, by brute force. You know, they're changing the nonce in the header and the block header, trying to make the hash fall beneath the target. And that's a kind of like random lead, leader selection, right? That, you know, your chance of finding that puzzle first is approximately proportional to the computing power that you're, 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 you know, you're, you're dedicating to it. But the problem is that, you know, it's a brute force search. And, you know, it, sometimes that, sometimes, you know, a, a random leader is selected quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time and there's a variance, right? So as you, you know, you want to design um, optimal parameters, but, but, but you, you, you can't because you never, you know, you, you, you just have to design things for a very broad range of leader selection times. Because you're just waiting around for this thing to happen, whereas you don't have the ability to tune it to happen in an optimal fashion. Precisely, precisely. And so if you're looking at something like a threshold relay chain, well, you know, we can tune it exactly. We can say, for example, that each group should, should collect transactions for five seconds, produce the block, and then, you know, the next group collects transactions for five seconds. And, and can the members of the group process, collect and process transactions in parallel? Yeah, well, that's another question. So, Because um, I'm trying to see how, how, this, uh, how this provides that infinite scaling when you've got a million processes. Right. So um, first of all, let's observe that if we have one of these infinitely scalable decentralized networks uh, that can store any amount of state right, and can process any amount of transactions a second, Clearly, first of all, um, no process, no individual process can, can see more than a tiny fraction of that state and a tiny fraction of the uh, transactions being processed a second. So we can also move, deduce from that the, the traditional idea of a blockchain where you, know, you have a sequence of blocks that hold all the state and all the transactions um, is completely impractical. In fact, we're going to need a way of transitioning the state you know, as, as transactions are received and applied. We're going to need a way of transitioning the state that uh, does not depend upon people validating every previous transaction in all the existing state. Because, you know, it wouldn't even be possible for, for a, you know, a process to, to, to um, load up or view all of these, of the history. Uh, yeah, we're talking about a very different kind of system to what we see at the moment. And necessarily, it's going to involve validation systems. You know, pretty much, you know, the responsibility for storing state will be partitioned and divided amongst all, all the processes in our network. And transactions will come in that, that make transitions to the state. You know, like, you know, transact. when I say transaction, I mean, you know, a smart contract, a call to a smart contract method, which is going to cause some smart contract bytecode to be executed. And that's going to cause its state to change, right? Or to interact with other smart contracts, right? You know, each process is going to have a tiny fraction of the overall state. Uh, transactions, which are basically caused to smart contracts, are going to come in and um, they're going to execute it as applies to the, you know, against their local state. And somehow the network as a whole is going to have to know that they've done that correctly. But it's not going to be possible for everybody to, uh, to validate it. And 
this is very different to the sort of super naive systems we have at the moment where, you know, you know a Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin, 10,000 nodes. They, they, they don't actually do this, but they're meant to. The idea is that everybody validates everything, right? So, you know, the transaction is made on the network and thousands and thousands of computers validate the, the, the transaction that's been um, applied to or included in, the, included in the chain. Those systems, of course, are hopelessly naive. You know, they're just not going to work for, for uh, a scalable network. And uh, that's why, I mean, we probably, you probably can imagine one of the reasons that we need an incorruptible, unpredictable source of randomness. Because it turns out you can solve these problems if you have that, which is a sort of not immediately uh, <laughs> obvious why that'd be the case, but I'll explain it. So uh, there was a system that, uh, this is getting back again to early 2015, came up with called uh, Validation Towers and Validation Trees. We've talked about this. Yeah, I'm sure we have. Yeah, I'm sure we have. I mean, this goes back a long time. And it turns out that you can, you don't need to have the whole network validate every transaction. You can get almost exactly the same level of security with 50 processes validating a transaction as you can with a million. Only you're actually getting 50 50 processes validating it as opposed to some random subset of the million. Yeah, so imagine this. Imagine that uh, each band of state is mapped to a validation tower. And whenever a transaction is applied to that band of state and causes a transition, the transaction plus the transition, um, which is, you know, uh, anchored into some other state via Merkle tree path and so on, we won't go into those details, is passed to a validation tower. Now, let's say the validation tower proceeds, you know, through a sequence of an infinite sequence of new levels. And... Whoa, 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 whoa. First, first, let's, so let's define validation tower. A validate, the purpose of a validation tower is to validate state transitions. And what is, what does it, what comprises a validation tower? A validation tower is a sequence of levels built by randomly selected validators. Each level introduces some new tra- state transitions, which are, val- you know, are validated, but the level also attests to the levels, some number of levels beneath it being valid too. And so when you say plural, uh, validation towers plural, what does, uh, do those towers terminate? Yeah, so you can put these towers in a tree, right? So validation towers can also validate the output of other validation towers. The beautiful thing about that is that you can have this validation tree that produces, you know, some kind of digest as its output, a bit like a Merkle root, which it sticks into a master ch- a master chain. So right, yes, and that is a way to uh, that's a, that's a way to validate a uh, a massive uh, exactly. a massive subset of transactions. Exactly. So it's a bit like you know, although this existed long before Faxum, and I always <laughs> Faxum as an example, but you know, the idea is out there, right? I mean, uh, you, the, so you know. Basically, validation uh, towers and validation trees are doing for, you know, validation, scaling validation in a decentralized network in much the same way that, uh, you know, Merkle tree can scale the notarization of, and timestamping of data. Okay, got it. <laughs>
So, but to make it work, you, it, it depends very, very much on there being an incorruptible and unpredictable source of randomness. So going back to the uh, threshold relay chain system I described, this effectively creates a random heartbeat. So, you know, the output, so you might imagine there's some high level master chain in this network, right, which is a threshold relay chain. And this threshold relay chain will record sort of network metadata. So, for example, when a new group registers, you know, a new group's been successfully set up, it'll register its public key in that master chain. When a new process, you know, a new server, uh, a new computational resource joins the network, it'll register its, um, uh, you know, uh, public key and, and security deposit in that chain and so on. And that chain will also record, you know, these kind of root outputs from uh, the validation trees or tree. But, but as that thing progresses, it produces a random heartbeat. And that random heartbeat is driving the validation towers. So basically, it works something like this. Let's say you're part of a, I mean, you, by the way, it doesn't even have to be, I mean, each level in this validation tower could be built by a single process, potentially. It, it wouldn't be suboptimal, but you could. So let's say you are a, a process in the network. The random heartbeat um, might select you and would say, Arthur, go and build a new level on this validation tower. And uh, your job would be to collect state transitions from some, you know, band of state and check that they were, they were good with respect to the input and output data and the Merkle path and so on. And if you agreed that, that it was correct, you would create this extra level on the validation tab. But you would also, by the way, when you did that, contact some number of, you know, look at the contents of some number of previous levels by contacting the processes involved and perform the same validation. So for example, you might be saying, yes, I attest that these changes, these new changes are valid. And I also attest that the changes <clears throat> validated in you know, the five or 10, 10 rows, sorry, levels beneath me in the tower are also valid, right? Now, uh, you don't, the trick is that you don't know who's going to be selected to build the, the next level on top of you. And validate your transactions. Exactly. And you don't know. So um, you might hope, let's say you're a bad guy, you know, you're, you're the adversary. You might hope that the next, the next guy is also controlled by the adversary because you, let's just say, you've, you've basically validated some rubbish transaction that pays you, pays you a trillion dollars or something, right? So, you know, you validated that paying yourself a trillion dollars is um, correct when in fact it's not. So what you hope is that the next guy is also controlled by the adversary and the next guy, okay? Basically, you need to get your level buried some number deep, right? So it might be that your level has to be buried 10 deep. And then when it's buried 10 deep, all state transitions are validated. There's no, there's no like transaction history stored. It's just that the you know, once a state transition has been buried 10 levels deep, say, it's now considered valid, right? Now, the thing is, right, so, so you need to get your rubbish transaction that gives you gives yourself a trillion dollars buried. You, know, you need to get nine levels built on top of you, say. Now, what you might hope is that you could just say, right, the next guy, uh, he's not one of my one of you know one of my team. I'm not going to pass on my level to this next guy selector. And you just wait until the random beacon, the heartbeat, selects somebody that you know is in your team, and then you just that doesn't work because whenever you miss whenever a tower misses a heartbeat, the the levels that need to be validated 
sorry, the, you know, the, the levels that have been previously validated, the number of validations they need resets. So for example, if something was you know, sufficiently buried that it only needed you know, two more levels to be built on the tab before it was validated, now all of a sudden it resets needing you know, another nine levels on top of it again. So it doesn't work. You can't just withhold you know, a, a, the adversary, you know, but a faulty process or a faulty set of validators who built a level can't just withhold their level and wait. But there must come, there must be a threshold at which after continually uh, validating, validating to a point and then withholding and resetting and then validating to a point again and then withholding and resetting that that tower is considered to be a faulty tower. Yeah, so exactly. So what you can do is you can build out, uh, because of course, you know, it could be that the random be- the, the, you know, this random heartbeat, the beacon basically selects a faulty process or set of processes to build the next level, right? And so there has to be a way for correct processes to build out around the faulty level. So, but the thing is that mathematically, right? So wait, so how, so how do you identify, say, the, uh, the John Cleese actor in, uh, in this? And how do, you, uh, how, do you, how do you remove him from the equation? How do, yeah, how do you build around him? Well, so um, first of all, that the process. So let's say, let's say, you know, the, the tower is um, suddenly selected the John Cleese actor to build the next level, right? Now, in practice, we don't want this to happen too often. So you wouldn't have each level built by a single process. You'd have each level built by five processes or ten processes or something like that. But anyway, let's just say we're going with one process, and we've got the John Cleese, the faulty process. You say, I'm not doing anything, guys, right? So. The uh, it's very difficult, by the way, to prove an, to prove a negative, right? So um, the deal is that once you've built a level of a va- on a on a validation tower, you are economically inactive until your level has been validated by having some sufficient number of levels built on top, right? You obviously want to get yourself validated. Um, and now you've got this John Cleese actor on top of you who's not doing anything, right? And it could just be because it's crashed, right, or whatever. So uh, you can then unilaterally begin the process of building out around. But, of course, in doing so, you will reset the number of validations that um, are required, right? So if I let's say, you know, Arthur's the John Cleese, right, and you just suddenly decided you're not going to produce the, the level you're supposed to, and I'm, I'm beneath you. I can initiate choosing uh, via the random beacon a, a process a, a building out around you, but the number of validations that are required will be increased, right? So it'll be slower. So um, the the point is that you know you wouldn't want to. This isn't something you'd want to do. And in order to get yourself validated, you still need to have this sequence, uninter- uninterrupted sequence of validators agreeing after you and you have no way of predicting who they're going to be or controlling influencing that right and remember if any level is missed i a random heartbeat is missed it all resets again so you know if you uh you know imagine a network with you know for example i don't know 20% of them processes being faulty yeah, and you imagine that each level is, you know, composed with, uh, composed of ten, and you know, for example, you know, um, 
seven out of 10 of them have to agree to, to build a level, right? Um, the probability of you actually finding, say, for example, 10 groups where seven of them are all faulty and therefore can sort of validate your bad level is inc- infinitely small, right? Very, very small. And the problem for you is that, you know, once you've created a bad level, you're economically inactive. And, you know, depending on the network design, you could be So you can't even halt the, uh, halt the tower production anyway. No, I mean, that's, that, that's just not a good strategy. I mean, that, that's, I mean, you can, you can, I mean, it's actually bad. I mean, you're, you're harming the net, you know, you're harming other people in the network who are going to be delayed by this if you, if you don't produce the level. But it doesn't produce anything for you economically. There's no, there's no advantage for you doing this. The the what but the attack is not to fail because all you achieve by failing is you know uh, delaying yourself and other people and, and you know all kinds of incentive schemes can be built around that. But the attack is to be in cahoots with the you know the some process that's storing this band of state right and have a transaction submitted to that band of state that's invalid that gives you a trillion dollars right and now you you are going to validate that transition in your level and say, yes, this is a valid transition. Thank you for the trillion dollars. The problem is, in order for that transition to be finalized, if you like, you now need nine consecutive more levels to be built on top of it. I mean, if I'm saying nine, you know, it could be, you just put the numbers into the math and get the properties you want. But that, you know, we're just hypothetically, you, know, you need now need this nine, these nine consecutive levels built on top of you. Arbitrary. And let's say each level is going to be built by, you know, 10 processes and you need like seven of them to agree to produce the level. Now, the probability of, of this happening is infinitely small, right? So, you know, you can't just withhold your your level and wait for the next level to be, the random beacon to select the next level that you also control. Because every time that happens, it resets all the, it resets the amount of validation that's required, right? So, yeah, basically you're stuck forever. Now, that's a problem for you because... Oh, you know, you've got to put down a security deposit, right, to be part of the network. And each process has made a security deposit. So, you know, if you work out how many times that you would have to train, even if, you know, so you might think, okay, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I'm going to fail a lot of times because when I succeed, I'm going to get, going to get a trillion dollars. The, the problem is that each time you attempt this and you fail, you've lost your deposit. And, you know, apart from the fact it's going to take <laughs> take you millions of years of waiting till the heat death of the universe yeah universe yeah apart from that problem you might find that you've got you know somehow you found a way of living forever and you think it's okay (laughs) because one day you'll get a trillion dollars and you'll be master of the universe but uh the point is you don't have infinite resources you know so you're going to run out of resources long before that this attack succeeds so you know i mean you get a kind of network architecture where the top level is, is a kind of consensus layer which is something like a threshold relay chain which produce, which is the master record of consensus. I think it's one of the things that you can't, at least for me, I believe you shouldn't compromise on. So you see uh, systems, there's a lot of systems out there where you have all these kind of chains that are side chains. And oh, it's, for me, it's so horrible. It's inelegant. It's just horrible. You want to have a single database, right? I mean, you- yeah, exactly. And, and, and so it looks like what happens with, so tell me if I've got this, uh, if I've got this right. So you have a million processes. Yep. All yep. producing, um, all producing these validation trees, to some extent in parallel. Okay. Know, potentially, in parallel, has to be synchronously because otherwise, obviously, the thing would just crawl at the slowest. 
Right, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so synchronously in parallel and then, well, so while they're processing and validating transactions, you then have a central metadata chain that is validating the work of those peripheral validation trees. And um, right, and the, you've got validation towers that are in these trees, and then the root of those of the tree is in the uh, is validated by the central validation uh, central validation chain. Yeah, something like that. So, best way of thinking of it is, is first of all, we have a th- uh, first of all we have a network of ser- server resources that are identified, and the idea is that you create an identity by making a security deposit. And that the responsibilities of each identity will be approximately equal, and therefore each identity is expected to make some amount of computational resource available. That's another interesting area we can get to if you're interested, uh, how you make sure that these identities really have dedicated that amount of computational resource and really have kept unique copies of state and things like that. Anyway, so we've got this um, uh, universe of identities, each representing some amount of uh, approximately similar computational resource. And now we're going to have a three-level network architecture. At the top level, we're going to have consensus, right? What is the definitive state, right? What is the definitive membership of this network, right? You know, I, I what, you know, what identities are valid? What, what groups have been formed for those identities, right? Definitive state and definitive membership. Yeah, totally. So you need to know, I mean, that top-level chain has, like, the metadata, and you, you do need to know what processes are participating in the network. I mean, I haven't even thought, of, to be honest, it might be possible to shard that out and stuff. I, I haven't gone there. But I mean, for the moment, we've but, just... Assumed. Yeah, for the moment. And so that's the <laughs> consensus level. Yeah, so by the way, obviously, like, if, you, if, if it's like a 32-byte, if it's a 32-byte, uh, you know, public key, even if you've got a million processes, it's only 32 megabytes. So that's why. But um, so you've got the, 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 this top-level definitive uh, consensus layer, which is something like a threshold relay chain. And this definitive consensus layer, um, which is going to hold state routes and it's going to record, you know, the identities that are on the in the network and the groups that they formed and so on. This top level consensus layer also produces a random heartbeat, an incorruptible, unpredictable random heartbeat. Okay, and that is what powers the validation. That, exactly, and that now that drives everything else. Now below the consensus layer, you get the validation tree or trees, right? And, and so you've got the towers that are then built into trees, so you can infinitely yeah, exactly. scale out that validation yeah, yeah. framework. Yeah, because yeah, basically each tower can, you know, a validation tower can validate anything, right? Including the outputs of other towers. It doesn't have to be validating state transitions, uh, or, or at least you know, um, you know, low-level state transitions. And then at the bottom layer, you've got the um, partition state. So it's just three level. You've got consensus layer, which also produces the random heartbeat validation layer which is a tree of validation towers which is driven by the random heartbeat and then below that you've got the um, partition state man that is awesome it's nice right and it, so you get um you end up with a system and of course these towers and so on can all run it can all run synchronously and but it's all just being sort of fed up and so you end up with this just vast massive uh, decentralized database um i mean databases i i still think there's we, we all need to improve our Terminology. I mean, I, I, some, I sometimes use this phrase like trusted computing network. I'm not sure it captures it entirely. It's this concept of a giant, incorruptible virtual machine where we can all sort of a bit like we used to share our accounts and Unix servers and so on. We can all kind of up, 
upload our programs and have them into operate and things like that, but in well-defined ways that, 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 that are tamper-proof. And, and in this case, there's no limit. I mean, basically, the more processes that join, the more computational capacity you've got and the more storage capacity you've got. And I think in these, in these kind of networks, uh, you, they're, they're not, so you, you know, really, I, I sort of envisage them being run from people's basements semi-professionally, right? So, you know, a lot of people now have got quite fast connections into their homes around the world, right? In Europe and America, right? Um, domestic fiber links, for example. And, you know, people would run servers in their basement, right? Um, and then you've got a kind of like worldwide Amazon Web Services there, which, by the way, I mean, you know, even if you don't believe in decentralization as a sort of political force, and uh, there are good reasons to have to, to adopt this architecture because, you know, currently all of our infrastructure is um, co-located in these vast data centers. And sooner or later, it's just inevitable. Someone's going to fly an airplane into them or something like that. Real real tasteful on the 9th of September, Dominic. Oh, oh God, yeah, don't say that. Yes, I'm not, but I mean, uh, I mean, it's true, though, right? And, when, and the whole sector of the internet is going to go dark, right? Um, and that's why, like, you know, Amazon is pretty sort of coy and, you know, they, they, they try and, you know, keep it quiet where these things are. No one likes to talk about it. And Google's the same. But I mean... As we all know, that kind of secret keeping doesn't work very well. That's the Mr. Robot rehash of, uh, of Fight Club, right? Where they find, these, uh, they find where these, these data stores are and, uh, and destroy them. Yeah, I, I see that. But yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's just, I mean, the whole point about the internet, it was designed to help, uh, you know, the West withstand nuclear attack by decentralizing communications. But the infrastructure that we've been building on top is becoming increasingly centralized for lots of reasons. I think it's really important, though, that, that we try and um, push ahead and move, keep on trying to pursue this um, decentralized virtual machine thing. And there's all kinds of interesting things you can do, too. So even things that you know, people say, why, why do you want to put a search engine onto um, a decentralized network? And how is that possible? Because you have to have the search coming up quickly. And it turns out that well, first of all, obviously, you know, if you're talking about a centralized network, there's going to be some replication factor. All data has to be replicated, right? So that uh, that's how you that's how you, exactly how you achieve the performance, right? Because when you perform a search, each each process only searches a small subset of a range, right? So that that matches. We can have uh, you know external indexes, you know, crawlers that index the web, and we can uh, have you know quorums of them doing it. Right, and rewarding people when they agree. Okay, so once you've got this, suddenly it's very simple to build in economic incentives. First of all, you've got a really a really effective uh, searching yeah. infrastructure because you have this dis massive distributed network just contributing small pa small parts of its resources to searching small sets of the uh, of the total information space. Yeah, and then you can also have them use also have them crawling and. And balancing all of these, uh, and balancing all of these uh, tasks against their required contribution to the network, or receiving some uh, some economic incentive for performing them, as well as validating the network. Yeah. So, 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 when you're talking about like a search, building a search engine with smart contracts on top of something like Affinity, you know, you would have just in the same way that you know, like some of these prediction markets are talking about having people running services that 
you know, provide alternating public and private keys so they can batch transactions or reputation or, you know, data oracles, right? To, so they can decide what the outcome of events were, like the, the election and so on. You, you, you know, use similar systems and you, so you can, have, you, you can have external systems that are crawling the web and then creating quorums of these systems and making sure that they agree and providing rewards to those that agree. And so you're collecting you know, that data. That's how the, the, the smart contract system running, the, the search engine smart contract system can pull that data into the network. And there are sort of solutions where, you know, for example, one of the problems is, okay, well, you know, what's, what's the danger would be, I suppose, that, you know, the danger, you don't want to do pre-validation, right? You wouldn't want to have somebody doing a search on the index without the results being validated, because obviously then a miner could insert search results or something like that, right? You could be a bad, you could be a faulty miner and just wait there. And whenever, when any, wherever, whenever anyone performs a search, you could start inserting search results. But you wouldn't want to have the query go through a validation tower before the results are returned because people want to search and they want to get the results right away. So you do things like you, you have to ultimately make some kinds of, you know, provide some kind of configure, configurability for validation. So in the case of a search being performed, the, the results would be validated speculatively and post the results being returned, right? So let's say you, you submitted a search to the network okay, or we're talking about smart contracts here, right? The smart contracts would perform the search. And I mean, there's a whole, we have to change how smart contracts work a little bit to make this happen. But anyway, the smart contracts do the work, construct the results, right, return it to you. And now, depending upon the random beacon, right, depending on the random beacon, those search results may, may be validated. And let's say there's like a, you know, one in a, thousand times they're validated to keep the cost down or something. And then, you know, they might go through some smaller validation tower, right? Or something like that. So if, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the uh, contracts that have, or, or, or a, a mining server, whatever that's, um, sorry, a network server that's done this and I've inserted some search results. Well, guess what? You know, I, I might be able to get away with it, but um, some, most of the time, but, but, but I'm risking, in fact, my, faulty results that I've sent back being validated and, and be, being found out and having my security deposit taken away. So the point is the result, there are ways of doing this such that the results of the search query can be returned immediately and people can be kept honest by post-validation. And, you know, there's other techniques as well. Like, you know, one of the problems with um, transaction fees is that uh, whenever you involve money, you have to have the maximum amount of validation because even if it's a small amount of money, the danger is that somebody just somehow fraudulently combines lots and lots of tiny, tiny fraudulent transactions, right, to uh, steal a substantial amount of money. But you can do things with like low value transactions. You can make it more like a lottery, so that you know, you, you, let's say for example, you the transaction fee is a thousand times larger, but only but only applied one in a thousand times, so that you can avoid validation being performed in, 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 in most of the cases. Awesome. Yeah, this sounds... So there's really a, uh, there's a whole new world of the internet that we are probably missing out on by having blinders on individual projects in the space to build these consensus, uh, these consensus networks like Ethereum and, uh, and Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that, that, you know, so even the word smart contract, although we sort of internalized it now, is a little bit... It's awful. Mystical. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it came from Nick Sarbo's work, 
And, you know, don't forget, Nick Sabo went to law school, right? He was thinking specifically about how you automate legal contracts. And, you know, that, that can be seen in things like Ian Griggs' Ricardian contracts, where he's actually trying to have legal contracts which mix code and prose. Legal On quarter, I, I think that's bloody brilliant. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a whole linguistic side to this. Sure. movement that we haven't even that we don't really think about because it's too weird and i also find linguistics to be tiresome but they're still interesting right totally, yeah totally and it's but it's a different thing and that that would be in my mind that's a, that's the word smart contract is better applied to those kind of things than than this kind of thing but but so yeah i think probably trusted trusted computing network is probably a better term for this kind of thing, because you know it's it's fundamentally uh, a giant virtual machine where you can upload these kind of computational units, which we're currently calling smart contracts, and have them execute in an in an autonomous way and in a tamper-proof way. But I do think, yeah, there's some work that needs to be done to re- refine all of our terminology because the, the problem with um, so you know actually uh, terminology can be a mental prison, right? And I think it has been a mental prison. I think blockchain's been a mental prison. I mean. I spent years pulling my hair out, you know, just talking to Bitcoin guys and who just for whatever reason believe that it's absurd, blockchains can never scale and this is necessarily has to be every 10 minutes that you make a block and all this kind of stuff. And, and that came from all of this kind of cult that built up around Bitcoin. And now we have this thing called smart contracts. And the danger is that we just continually think in fiduciary terms or there are still people out there who, who just think about all this like it's just about a question of creating multi-sig systems or something, you know. So the terminology does create these kind of limitations to our thinking. And by the way, that's not just in decentralized networks. That's also in cryptography. So one of the things I realized when I had a kind of epiphany uh, uh, sort of end of 2014, beginning of 2015 was, well, hang on, we've got all these different cryptographic algorithms and they're given these names. But these names obscure the actual nature of the, what the algorithms are doing. So if you look at you know, cryptographic signatures, or particularly unique deterministic signatures like Dan Bonnet's uh, BLS, which is what we use, you know, we call it a signature system. You, know, you have a public key and a private key. You have a message, and you create a signature on that message right? that can be validated against your public key. And so you're sort of locked into this. Uh, you're you're locked into this world where you're 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 just thinking about this algorithm and the, in in terms of creating signatures on messages so other people can validate that you've somehow tested to the contents or something, right? But actually, these algorithms are much much more powerful than that. You know, in actual fact, you're producing a random number on demand that. You know, you, you, it's unique and deterministic. There's only one random number you can produce, and that random number can be produced on a communications round. It's, it's, uh, you know, you've actually got a verifiable random function. And then if we use BLS threshold signatures, unique deterministic threshold signatures, now that random number is only producible on the agreement of some threshold of the participants. And that's incredibly powerful because when you have larger groups, the probability that the adversary can either stop that group from producing the signature or somehow have the ability to create the signature in advance, you know, and then see the next group or whatever it is, is extraordinarily low. Um, and we didn't discuss, by the way, there's a whole, some of the stuff I oversimplified, you can actually have different kinds of 
You can have you can have different threshold chains. You can have like threshold chains with smaller threshold groups, and then you can have another watchdog chain that has a huge threshold group. And I've also got we've also got a consensus algorithm that um, is O N, right, which is the first one. But we did that by allowing that the uh, consensus is only probably that reach is only probably correct. So there's all this stuff that's got to be somehow put into papers and communicated and just. Um, well, this is a start, man. Like, this I mean, lots of people will listen to this. And, and so we've got a guy, actually, we just, um, so we're now trying to actually push out some of the cryptography because it's kind of like, you know, you're talking about this stuff. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. But uh, we've actually um, produced, we've got a guy in Japan who's built this library and he's been working with Timo Hank, who's, who's on our team. Timo Hank is the guy that created the uh, ASIC boost algorithm. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. It was caused some controversy in the in mining Bitcoin mining circles because it could you could pretty much apply it to any ASIC and improve the performance by 20%. So a lot of the miners are upset. They felt their investment in uh, ASICs was going to be undermined. But anyway, he's uh, cryptographer. He's been, yeah, so he's, it's been great. So we've been growing the team and uh, he's been uh, working on this and the results of, of um, you know, the simulations for the threshold relay just come in. and It's fantastic. I mean, the performance is absolutely absurd. I mean, uh, you know, you can you can combine threshold signature shares from you know hundreds of processes in just a few milliseconds and so on. So, and we're gonna we're gonna release all that. I mean, it's, it, sh- shortly we're gonna you know I think I think in fact Timo's planning. I think there's an Ethereum Silicon Valley Ethereum meetup. Is it on Sunday or something or tonight? I don't know. Any? I think he's actually going to run the run the demo and point to the code on GitHub and stuff. So. Well, this will come out on uh, uh, next Friday. So, well, yeah, uh, this will come out a week from today. So that will have just happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, things are happening bit by bit. So I wish wish I'd sort of progressed it, done less talking early on and just got on with it earlier on actually now. Of course, once you get started. Cool. Hey, well, this has been absolutely fantastic, Dominic. I always love talking to you. And uh, I hounded you for months. And I'm glad I finally got you back on the line to talk about scaling. Yeah, it's been really good catching up. I've enjoyed talking about it. Awesome. Well, I'll see you at DevCon. Definitely. See you in Shanghai. Great. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info, or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.info.